Good morning. Merry Christmas to you this morning. We are glad that you're here this Sunday before Christmas Day. I'm excited about sharing with you from the Word of God this morning. So take your Bibles, and we are going to read from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, starting at verse 13 in just a moment. And then I wanted to read to you the Christmas story this day from the book, the narrative from the book of Luke. So it's found in Luke chapter 2, and we'll refer to that. And then a number of other places, I will not give them all to you because you would not remember them, and we'll just get to them as we go through. It's in your notes, and it's on the screen today. So this is about, this is the gift, uh, there are the season of gift giving. And, and so I don't know if you have done any shopping online. If you probably haven't done any shopping online, then you're not living in the same world everybody else is living, right? And so... Um, just got a delivery. I don't know if you recognize these boxes or not, you know, and, and so it's got the smile on the front. That means it's a, a happy thing because that means that Amazon has taken your money and they're laughing all the way to the bank. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's this gift that you have sought to get for someone in your life. And, uh, boy, you don't know if it's going to arrive on time and you're constantly looking. You know, I love it now that they can, they even send you a photograph when they leave it on the, the front uh, step of your home, they send you a photograph that they've left it. That's so if your neighbor steals it, then you know that they actually left it, right? And, but yet, um, you know that I, I read an article this week that says that they're delivering this year up to New Year's Eve. And in some cities, if you shop by 9.30 a.m. New Year's Eve, then you will have the package at your home by the afternoon of New Year's Eve. Isn't that crazy? That's for the very last minute, last minute, last minute, last minute shoppers, okay? For, but I don't think that happens in Anderson, South Carolina. I really don't. But yet, I thought about this and this gift. It, it's what, you know, it, it's everyone wants to give it. Everyone wants to get it. It's the perfect gift. Why? It's the perfect size. It is. It's a perfect size. It's huge enough to impress your friends, yet small enough to actually touch the hearts of those around you. It is a perfect style. It's current. It's trendy, yet traditional. I think the word that we use for that is transitional, is what we use, because it's never out of style. It's a perfect find. It's a perfect find that, that you know, it's out of, every, no one has it in stock, but at the right minute, it shows up on your front doorstep. It's the perfect fit because it's very practical in all areas of your life. If you don't need it today, well, it works tomorrow for you perfectly. It's the perfect price, perfect price, so much you can't afford it. But when you could, everyone would say, how in the world did you buy that? Yet the price of that gift is free. There is a gift like that, Mark. You, you're singing, well, that gift is absolutely impossible to find or to have or possess. But yet, there is a gift like that very much, and that is that only God could give a gift like that, and that is the absolute gift of Advent. Do you know that God loves to give us things? I don't know if you understand that about God, but let me share a text with you before we get to Matthew chapter 16. It's Luke 12 and 32, and here is what it says. It says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And when I read that, I think our mind immediately goes to this of God giving us all these tangible things in life, you know, that I asked for. That, Lord, I asked for this new, very expensive car this year for Christmas, and I'm expecting to go out like the Lexus commercial. It's going to have a big red bow on the top of it, and that's what I want. And I want to tell you, if we read that into this verse only, then this verse would be extremely shallow. But what we realize is this, if you read this verse in context, even the verses after it, 
What it tells you to do is to go sell all the other things that you have is what it says. It says to sell all these. So it talks about something of value that's greater than just the tangible things in our life. It is the gift that God gives us through his son Jesus. It's such a powerful gift that you and I have. It's a very perfect gift. And when Luke writes this text to us that we just read, it describes the very heart of God. Because I think that sometimes when we think of Advent, we think that God somehow, he looks down at earth and he sees the brokenness of mankind and the darkness of this world. And, he, and, and somehow he has to respond out of compulsion, that, that, that he feels that he's obligated, that he somehow begrudgingly sends his son. Because if not, then we are absolutely, we're hopeless and we're a mess. So he has to do something. Can I tell you, it describes the very heart of God in that he gives freely. He gave his son freely to you and I. He is God. So being God means that you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Yes, that's exactly right. It's like what most three-year-olds think of themselves, right? Yes, they think they're God, so they don't have to do anything they don't want to do. God doesn't have to do anything. When God sends his son Jesus into this world for you and I on Advent, and we celebrate that this time of year, that, realize it this, it's not by compulsion. It's not like that somehow begrudgingly has to give this gift to you and I. No, he acts out of total freedom. This statement that we just read from the book of Luke is unrestrained, and it's, it's purely uh, motivated action, motivated in love for you and I. It's the depth of his heart and his desire to give you and I the greatest gift, and that is his son. And when he gives us the son, his son, Jesus, with that comes hope. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning for a few, few moments. That I want to talk to you about hope. And not the church hope, okay? So understand that, because we might get that confused. But I want to talk to you about the hope that comes in Christ during this Advent season. And to understand hope, the hope that we need in life, I think we have to understand something about Jesus. It's very, very important that we do that. So it's Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. There's this conversation that's taking place between Jesus and his disciples. There's some words here that are spoken by Peter that are very powerful for you and I about who Christ is. And so it says in Matthew 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And, and all of, he's already answering part of the question, that of being the Son of Man. He refers to himself as that. But he says, who are people saying that I am? So what's the word on the street, he says to his disciples. What are they saying about me when you go to the marketplace? And they answer in verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the word on the street about Jesus is this, that he is some reincarnated dead prophet is exactly what they're saying. That these guys are all heavy hitters in the minds of the, of the Jews. So they're saying he is a reincarnated um, prophet. But Jesus flips the question on them in verse 15, and here is what he says. He asks him a most important question, perhaps something that you and I need to really ponder in our hearts and our lives this morning. He says to them this. He said, but who do you say that I am? We're going to cover the bases with everybody else, but let's make this very personal. Jesus has a way of making everything personal about us because that's about relationship, and that's what he desires to have with you and I. So he said, who do you say that I am? In order for you to, and I to, to not just understand hope in our lives, 
but for you and I to have hope within our lives. When things are dark within our lives, when things are not going the way we think they should go, then we have to understand who Christ is because that answer does matter. Who do you say that I am? Well, Peter is not shy. No, there, there's no shy bone in Peter's body. Absolutely not. You know, he, he's the guy that, that cuts off the ear of the, of the temple guard in the garden when they come to arrest Jesus. So he's not shy at all. He stands up. I kind of get this mental picture of him. He squares his shoulders. He's kind of very proud. And Peter replied, you are the Christ, he said. You are the Christ. Articles matter. So he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and I thought about this text and how this plays into all of this Advent celebration. And it's where this is all spoken because location is extremely important. It's right outside of Caesarea Philippi. Well, what does that mean? It's a town that's named after Caesar Augustus. And when we read the Christmas story in a moment from Luke chapter 2, we're going to hear that name. It's a city that Caesar named after himself. There Herod builds this great temple in honor of the Roman emperor Caesar. And it's the crown jewel of the occupied territories of Rome is what it is. It's how Rome flexes their muscles when they occupy a nation. They build great cities in the middle of that nation as to remind those that are, are being occupied of their great power and of their great ability and their strength. In other words, they break the will of the people that they occupy by doing this. And so right here outside of this great city that stands for the great power of of that of Rome, Peter proclaims, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. It's powerful. If we're going to have hope, if you're going to have some hope in your life in this world, when things are not going the way you want them to go, then you're going to have to have an understanding of who Jesus is. You are. Now, I get excited this morning about this, and I've been struggling with this voice call thing all week, you know, and and actually, I had Travis on standby this morning just in case, so if I run out the back, then Travis is going to run up on the stage, and it's like a tag team wrestling match, and he takes over because I can't talk anymore. But I'm going to talk as long as I can talk this morning. The second service, what they're going to get, they may get a whisper. But I want to tell you, I'm going to do my best to share what God has placed within my heart this morning about hope. In order to have hope, you have to understand who Christ is. That's important. So he starts out, Peter starts out by proclaiming, you are the Christ. Hope is found in Jesus the Christ. He proclaims that he is king. That's exactly what I mean. That he is king over everything on earth and he is king over everything in heaven. But Mark, you think if he's king, then I know a little bit about the Advent narrative. Then that's not the way a king comes into the world. He seems like a king that's on the run from the Roman Empire. Can I tell you, listen... Don't let appearances fool you about Jesus this morning. Here is the text in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. This is what we call the Advent narrative. It's this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Uh, There's the name. It relates to, to that of Caesarea Philippi, where Peter is proclaiming who Jesus is. He says that all the world would be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Those are important things that we'll refer to in a moment. To be registered with Mary, to his betrothed, who was with child. Listen, if we're going to make a mistake, 
where we make a mistake in this very old story for you and I is this. That we assume that Caesar, that him being the Roman emperor, is control of all of the advent or all of the advent events. We our mistake is to assume that Caesar is in control here of this narrative. It's not that at all. No. Because who we think is king is not the ultimate king. And that's exactly what Peter is telling us outside of Caesarea Philippi. That God is creator. God is sustainer of all. That God is king of all things. So when Peter declares you are the Christ, he's making this declaration that you're the king, you're the Messiah. He's calling Jesus king in the very shadow of the crown jewel of the Roman Empire. Yes, of that of Caesarea Philippi. And Rome is not that of a really small group of individuals that you're going to kick around like you're a bunch of kids on a playground. Understand this. When Rome occupies the world, they occupy everything from that of India to England. It is huge. 4,600 miles of occupation. You say, Mark, but look how big the United States is. Can I tell you from coast to coast as the crow flies that the United States is 2,600 miles wide? So you can see that Rome is this huge and massive power. But can I tell you, when we read this story, what we realize is this. God is in ultimate control. No matter how big Rome is, no matter how much they control in this world, God is always in control. And I say that for my life and your life, that whatever is happening today, whatever is taking place, whatever you go home and you face this afternoon, understand this, that Christ is king and he is in control of all things. Yes, my voice is coming back. I feel that. You say, you don't sound like it. Just let me live in the illusion for that for a moment. And it is understand that Rome is this brutal, violent force that has taken over this land. And in the shadow of all of that, Peter proclaims that you are the king. And I think that sometimes in our lives, in those moments when we feel the enemy coming against us, when, when we think that he has stole things from us, when we are in the shadows of darkness in our life, that we have to stand up and we have to proclaim who Christ is. We have to say, no, I understand these things are happening around me and I'm not going to deny what's going on around me because that is lying. Understand that. But what I realize is that God is ultimately in control. And so Peter does that right outside the crown jewel of the Roman occupied territory. It's an amazing point. So in light of that, what appears to be the work of man in this, this Advent narrative, what appears to be the work of man is actually the work of Christ. It is. It's the work of a providential God. God uses kings like Caesar. God uses nations like Rome. And hope enters this world. But the road that hope takes to enter this world is a rough road. It is the hard road. Understand that. That God uses tough times in our lives. He does to make very beautiful moments within our lives. If, if you look at this narrative, you have a carpenter. He's marrying a peasant girl. And, and they're, they're engaged. They're not even married yet. She becomes pregnant from the Holy Spirit. That's a problem. Understand, right? That's a problem. If you're engaged, I mean, think about going and telling your fiance that you're now pregnant and you're impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That is going to cause some real interesting conversations, is it not? Yes, it is. 
So there is a problem. How does Joseph initially respond? We'll read that in a moment from the book of Matthew. He entertains divorce. He's going to divorce her quietly. But during the process of her, her pregnancy, they travel to Bethlehem. They find lodging in a cave. They're visited by some shepherds. Yes, why are they in a cave? Because Joseph failed to make the reservations at the hotel. It's his fault. We know that, right? Yes, and so they're visited by hope enters this world the hard way. So why do you think that having hope in this life is going to be easy for you? I thought about this. That I can just sit here in the middle of all of the tough times of my life and I can, I can wish that things would be better. And, and maybe somehow that, you know, I use God like rubbing a, a lamp and the genie pops out and, and, and all of a sudden everything is wonderful in my life. If hope enters the world the hard way like it does here with Mary and Joseph and their relationship and all these other elements of the narrative, then why do we think that hope is going to come into our life the easy way? And I want to tell you this morning, God uses kings and kingdoms and hardships and struggles and bad times to birth greater hope within our lives. There, the, listen, the suffering in our life, the things in our life, the situations, it's about you and I gaining hope. The goal of everything of our lives, including the struggles of our life, is that you and I have hope. In whom do we hope is the question. That's it. Yes. Because there's two types of hope in our lives. Oh, there's general hope. And general hope is that of, you know, it, it's like, well, I I hope in my job because I'm going to get a paycheck and that's going to pay the bills. And, and, and then I hope in my relationship that that's going to fulfill me in my relationship. And, and I hope in other things in my life that I'm going to be fulfilled through those tangible things of my life. So that's general hope. But then there is ultimate hope in my life. And that is that I hope in God who provides me the strength and the ability to go to work every day and to earn the money. I hope in God who provides the peace in my relationship that maintains that relationship so I'm fulfilled through that relationship. So that is ultimate hope. The problem in our life is this. When you and I begin to replace ultimate hope with general hope, when we begin to place all of our hope in those things that are tangible in life, and that happens to all of us. We fluctuate in and out of that in our lives, no matter how long we have followed Christ, that we still struggle in that area of that of displaced hope. Because when you put general hope in the place of the ultimate hope of your life is Christ, that general hope of your life, whether it's money or relationship or it's your job or it's your education, can never bear up under the weight of the expectations of your life. It's just not going to work. And that's when you find yourself discouraged. And that's when you find yourself disheartened in life, when you begin to have displaced hope. Oh, can I tell you, Christ has given us a hope through that, through him, him coming into our world, through him invading the darkness of our lives. He's given us a hope that bears up under all the weights of this world. Let me read you this text from the book of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17. And it really gives us a very clear understanding of the hope that we have in Christ. So when God d- desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that is you and I, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guarantees with an oath. This is very Old Testament-ish stuff that we find in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when you would simply take an oath or a promise, that many times that you would do that with a price attached to it. So if you took an oath on the lives of your family members and you broke that oath, guess what? 
that your family members die. Boy, it really makes you think twice before you promise something, doesn't it? It really does. So here it is. God makes this oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Man, you got to think about that for a moment. It is impossible for God to lie. That whatever God has told us, that God is able to stand up under that promise. Understand that. So, so that the absolute foundation of, of hope is trust that God cannot lie. And then he goes on to say, we who have fled for refuge, that they're struggling in life, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That simply this place in my life, when things are not going well in my life, it is absolutely the most fertile ground for hope in my life. Listen, if you're sitting here and you're struggling for hope, if you're sitting here this morning and you're looking for something to hang on to, can I tell you today that that is the most fertile ground in your life for hope? And I'm going to explain that to you in just a moment. But we read on. We have this as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest before or, or forever after the order of Melchizedek. Listen, hope is an anchor that is placed deep within our lives. Understand that. And the only way that that happens is that it's forged in the furnace of our life. It's forged in the struggles of our life. Hope is not something that you simply wish would happen or you you rub the, the magic lamp and it appears before you. It's not that, but it's forged in the very hard times of our life. Hope is worked out in the very heart of our lives. It's like an anchor. It, it, it holds us in place. But yet even more than that, when I read this part about it being an anchor, what I realized is this, that, that an anchor drops deep down into the ocean to hold the ship in place as hope drops deep down into my heart and my life. It's forged in those moments of my life when I'm struggling so that even when the circumstances around me may not change in my life, I am still anchored to the truth of Christ, that he is for me, he is not against me, that he loves me, and all things work together for my good. That's hope. Mark, I, I hear that, but I'm struggling with this thought this morning that hope is forged in the tough times of my life. Well, let me explain it to you for a moment, just very practically. And, and it's this. Listen, when do you desire hope the most in your life? When do you desire hope the most in your life? When are you leaning into God the greatest within your life? Is it when everything is going well? Or is it when things have derailed within your life? When is that moment? And it's the times when things have derailed in your life that you are desiring hope the greatest. It's a time in your life when, when, when things are just not coming together that you're leaning into Christ. That is when hope is simply forged within our lives. So it's tough moments. I, I think we, we sort of frame it as this instantaneous kind of thing that happens to us, you know, and, and if we just think great thoughts and good thoughts and positive thoughts, that, that simply hope is going to happen within our life. But no, it is forged in the very place that you find yourself in today. So where you find yourself in at this moment, we're needing hope. It is the most opportune and fertile ground for God to give you hope. It's now. It's where you are today. That's the message 
of the advent. That is it. That God sends Jesus into the fray of our lives. He doesn't send Jesus into the moments when we're getting everything right. That's not it. The world was a messed up place when Jesus came into it. Understand this. And yet hope is forged there in the life of the Christ child and the struggles of the world. It is. The road to this point for Mary and Joseph has been a tough road. I I thought about this an awful lot. I read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the Synoptic Gospels. It goes back to the story, the, the, the narrative of the Advent. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or promised or engaged to Joseph before they came together. And before they came together, it means they have not consummated the marriage. If you read the text, also in the book of Luke, you find that their relationship is not sexually consummated until after the birth of Christ. And so it goes on to say that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's a problem for Joseph. Absolutely it is. He's a great man, but he's human. So his response in verse 19 is this. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Oh, the way to hope is not always the thing that's most visible in front of our eyes. It's not. It, it, it's not always that thing that's right in front of our face that as Joseph does in this text, that sometimes you have to sleep on it. And in the middle of the night, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and exposes to him what has happened in Mary's life and what is simply going on. And then the scripture says that when he wakes up the next day in verse 24 of, of Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph simply says that he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. He takes his wife. Can I tell you, and, and that, I, I read this, and I read this over and over again. I said, there has to be something very important about this, this moment, this, this uh, initial step that Joseph takes here. And, it's, and it's, it's this, is that you have to take hope. You have to take hold of it today. It's, it's not that you work up hope in your life or deserve it, no. But you respond to the hope that Christ has already given you. And, but you have to take hold of it. You have to stand up in your life and say, listen, I choose to hope in this life. I choose in my situation, even when it's dark, I choose to have hope in my life. And that hope is not based upon anything I do or something I've earned, but that hope is based upon the gift of Christ. You have to make a choice. I'm just I'm just sitting over here and I'm just going to kind of wait for hope to drop in my lap is what I'm going to do, you know? And 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 so you know, Lord, you just you just kind of come to me. You you work that out, and 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 when you're ready to give me hope, then you just kind of send me a message, and and then then hope will happen in my life. And I want to tell you, if you're waiting in in that manner for hope, it's not going to happen. If you look at the text, if you understand these absolute narratives they were given, you have to take hold of hope. You have to make this decision in your life, not an effort, because you're never going to earn it. But you have to make a decision in your life to take hold of hope this morning. Hope is not ours until we really take hold of it. I truly believe that. I respond by choosing that for my life. I I make that initiative. Joseph, he takes hold of his wife. 
He, he, he does. And, and he says, you know what? I, I, man, I don't know all the details. I can't explain all of this. How does the Holy Spirit marry? I don't know. I don't know all of those things. I just can't figure all that out in my mind. You know? But what I realize is, is what God said to me. And I understand that God cannot lie. So, so I stand upon that. And I take hold of this. And I choose to hope in this. When Peter's standing outside of Caesarea Philippi, when he calls him the Christ, he doesn't stop there by calling him the king, but he also says that Jesus is the son of God, that he's, he's the son of God. And, and when I read that, what I realize is that when you read Old and New Testament, that many times people, prophets, great people are referred to as sons of God, but yet this phrase is very unique to Jesus because the article is there that he is the son of God. And when I, when I understand this, what I realize is that title is absolutely um, unique for him in that being the Son of God because he eternally coexists with the Father, that he is not a creation of the Father, but they have eternally coexisted together. And he operates with this unlimited authority in life that not only is he, Jesus the creator of everything that we know, but he's a sustainer of everything that you and I understand and know this morning. And so Luke chapter 2, again, our narrative Verse 6 says this, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Oh, here's what happens. This is the incarnation. Every time I talk about the incarnation with you on a Sunday morning, I get so excited because that is the Son of God becomes like us. He doesn't become us, but he becomes like us. That's the power of the incarnation, that he calls himself the Son of Man, and then Peter calls himself the Son of God, and that is absolutely incarnate Christ, that he is fully God, then he is fully man. He invades our world. He invades our life at the very darkest moments of our existence, that when we're sinful and we're misguided, we're lost in our own darkness, that God sends his Son. When things are hopeless, hope invades. The Father sends that gift, and hope is not an angel it's not that at all. It's not a created being from heaven. Yes, an angel shows up to Joseph and Mary and the shepherds in the story. Absolutely, that's true. But it is God. It is God who comes for us. It is God who comes for us in the middle of our hopelessness and brokenness. It is God. When we think that things are done... God always shows up at the right time. Can I read to you an Old Testament text from the book of Isaiah for a moment, chapter 11? We said last week that there's two common threads that we find throughout the scriptures. One is that of promise and the other is fulfillment. Predominantly the Old Testament is promise. Predominantly the New Testament is fulfillment through the works and the life of Christ. So that, can I read to you a promise way back in the Old Testament? I'll read to you the fulfillment from the book of Romans in a moment. But Isaiah 11 and 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's a strange verse, isn't it? There shall come forth uh, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's the most awesome uh, Advent text that you you could use. On Christmas Sunday morning, just read that to your family and don't say anything else about it, right? Just kind of throw it out there and have them look at you like, huh? What are you talking about? But it's so powerful. 
I have to read it again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay, let me explain this to you, all right, for a moment. Uh, And I'm not insulting your intelligence, but let me just kind of lay it out very simple. A stump, man, it's it's a former tree. Isn't that right? Yes. It's a tree so devastated that there's only a stump that remains. It appears to be dead. There's no hope of any tree ever coming from that stump again. And then the writer Isaiah uses the name Jesse. Why does he use Jesse? Jesse is a, a Bethlehemite. What does that mean? That he's from Bethlehem. Jesse is the father of David. David would be the king of Israel, Judea, and then the king of Israel at some point. Who comes from the line of David? Joseph. And simply that of the reason Joseph and Mary has to go to Bethlehem. Why? Because Joseph is of the line and the lineage of David, who is from the line and the lineage of Jesse, who this Old Testament scripture refers to. Why does it call it a stump? Because the line and lineage of Jesse has been almost decimated by an occupying force in the nation of Israel. So there's very few left. There's really no hope for that of a future for his family and his line and his lineage. It's a beautiful text about what God does with hope in our lives. Because what happens here is this, that what appears to be dead, what appears to be dead in my life and your life, like this Jesse's line, what appears to be dead, God causes a shoot. God causes a small little leaf to begin to grow. That is the life of David. And from that shoot becomes a branch. Who is that branch that comes out of the shoot from the stump? And that is Jesus. Because why? Because God specializes in bringing hope from things that you and I think have died. I have, I have practiced that so many times this week to try to get that right so that would, you would understand that because it's such a powerful illustration and thought for you and I, but it's more than an illustration. It's absolutely truth that the things that we think are dead in our life, the things that we think are hopeless in our life, the things that we might want to give up on within our life, God is saying to you and I this morning, don't give up. Take hold of hope. Hold on. It may look like a stump. It may look like nothing is there and nothing will ever come from this. But understand this. God specializes in breathing life into death. Oh, I could preach for an hour. Don't do that, Mark. It's Christmas Sunday. We have family events today. I understand that. I do. We have, we have the Lord's table to separate. But men, you could preach for this forever. It goes back to the resurrection. It goes back to the coming of Christ, finding us in our own sinful death. And he breathes life into us. It's so powerful. Yet I think so many times that you and I give up. Oh, but hope is a baby born in a cave, wrapped in rags, Uh, The mother, desperate to keep this child warm, she places him in a feed bin in a town that that more people leave than move into because Joseph has to come back to his hometown because nobody really wants to live in Bethlehem anymore. Hope comes to hopelessness. Don't you give up in life. Keep hoping. Understand this. It may appear to be dead, but God can breathe life back into whatever that is in your life. Trust him. He doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. 
Oh, Romans 15 and 12 says, and again, Isaiah says, because I have to give you the fulfillment, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Don't give up. Don't give in. Listen, the rough place in your life, the tough place in your life is an opportunity for hope to grow. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. All those other analogies that we could actually come up with. Don't give up because in that tough moment of your life, this is where hope grows. Can I finish this narrative with you of, of, about the coming of Christ? So back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. I didn't want to leave this out because I think it's important for us to understand this and how God sends hope into the world. But not it's such a powerful thing because if, if you look at the humanity of Joseph and Mary in this, that God sends some great hope into their lives also in the middle of that, not just Christ, but he uses others unassumingly to bring hope into their lives. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field watching watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths Lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, I, I underline this last verse, 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I look at what does what pondering mean? Because it's not a word that we use often. You know, when is the last time you told a person at work that give me a little moment because I'm pondering? You, know, you don't say that, right? No, but what it means is it's assessing, it's evaluating. She's considering that, listen, she still doesn't have all the answers to all of this. And at the very right moment, at the very right moment, set before the ages of time, God sends shepherds to Mary and Joseph. I thought, this is a great moment of hope within their lives. But it's not the way that I would have written the story. Why? Because shepherds are kind of, well, listen, shepherds can't even testify in court because they lack a lot of integrity. Shepherds can't worship in the temple. They're considered unclean. When shepherds show up at your house, that you, call, you, you, you hold all of your valuables very close because they're known to be a very shady group of individuals. But it's shepherds who God sends. Listen. You're sitting around waiting for a message from God about hope in your life. You're sitting around waiting for God to speak to you, to give you hope. And you miss the shepherds because you're always waiting for the magi to show up. What do you mean? How many times have you said to God, God, if I could write my life, I sure wouldn't have written it like this. You know, I sure would have not written the chapters nor, nor any the beginning or, or whatever the end. My, I would have never written it like this. No, if I were going to write this narrative, then I would have simply had the Magi show up at the, at the manger scene in the cave in Bethlehem. I would have eliminated the shepherds showing up and that would have been it. But it wasn't, it wasn't their plan. But it's always God's plan. Yes. 
Well, I haven't seen God work like I think he should work in the situations of my life. Listen, hope believes that God is not done. Understand this. That's what hope believes. Hope believes that God is not done. Because here's the thing. You may not see God working in your life this morning. But can I tell you, God cannot lie. That God is working within your life this morning. That you operate with that three and a half inch view of life. As far as you can see your hand in front of your face. But God sees you with that 30,000 foot view of your life today. He sees everything about you. He knows everything. And God has a plan for past, present, and future in your life. So don't give up. Don't give up this morning, even if the stump appears dead. Don't give up if you're sitting like, like Mary and Joseph in that cave in Bethlehem. They have a baby wrapped in a cloth. They don't have all the answers for their life. But yet God uses shepherds to bring hope in their life. Oh, I... I, I thought this through, you know, I've, I've heard people say, well, all I need is for God to, to throw me a lifeline. You know, that's what I need God to throw me a lifeline in life. And, and, and we have this view. You've been wondering, what is this for? And, and so now I use this, you know, save it for the end. Right? That we have this view of Advent like this. And it's, it's, it's a nice kind of sanitized view of Advent. And Advent is this, that Jesus shows up and we're like bobbing in the middle of the ocean and, and we're drowning and we're going up and down and up and down. And what Jesus does is Jesus stands in the middle of the boat and he throws us this rescue ring, you know? And he shouts from the boat to us, hey, grab hold of that, swim as hard as you can and make your way over to me. Can I tell you, that's the worst illustration of Advent that's ever been known to man. Worse. Because when Jesus shows up on the sea for you and I, if we use that analogy, that we're not bobbing up and down in the ocean, gasping for air, trying to stay afloat. But when Jesus shows up, we've already drowned. When Jesus shows up in our lives, that we're already at the bottom of the ocean. Advent is this. That Jesus dives from the boat. And if he were an Olympic diver, he would get a 10 for that dive. Trust me, he would. Yes. He dives from the boat. He swims to the very bottom of the ocean. He grabs you and I who are, in fact, the scripture says in Ephesians 2 and 1, and you have been made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. He finds us at the very bottom. We have drowned. We are lifeless. And what Jesus does is this, that he breathes life back into our lifelessness is what he does. That we're not dog paddling on our own. We're not just kind of making it on our own. No. In fact, a life preserver in the Advent story is absolutely useless because you don't throw life preservers to people who have drowned. But you have a Savior who dives into the fray of our lives, who makes his way to the very bottom of the ocean weary of lying in the death of our sins, and he breathes life and he breathes hope 
into us. He causes a shoot to grow from the stump of Jesse. He uses kings and nations. He sends an angel to a distraught Joseph who is contemplating divorcing Mary to cause him to have hope. He sends an angel choir to a group of shepherds who would not know the difference between a pipe organ and a crack pipe. They wouldn't know the difference. He sends shepherds to a a virgin named Mary in a cave setting in the ghetto of Bethlehem where she has her firstborn child wrapped in rags in a feed bin to confirm in her heart again that this is the Son of God, the Savior of all mankind. Because hope is an anchor in our life. Forged in the struggles of this world. Forged in the very furnace of hopelessness. So what does God want you to know this morning before we have communion together? Don't give up. Don't quit. In fact, when Jesus came into this world, he erased the existence of hopelessness because he invaded the entire world with hope. Yes, we feel hopeless at times, but there's always hope in Christ. What does God want us to do for some of you today? To take hold of that hope. To take hold of that hope. To respond to God's gift. I'm not saying it's an effort on yours to work. Effort would have been God just standing in the boat and throwing you the ring, the life preserver ring, and saying swim as hard as you can. No, no, it's not that at all. But it's a response to what he's already done for you this morning. That you choose to hope in him. So for a moment of contemplation, before we partake the Lord's table together, would you bow your heads for a moment, please? Closing your eyes, and I say that to you to just shut out all the things around you and everyone around you to take a moment in a very busy, busy time for a pause in your life. And to consider the truth of the scriptures this morning, that he brings us hope. And hope is forged in the very hardship of your life today, as hope was in that of Mary and Joseph, of, of the very narrative that we read about the Advent this morning that is forged in the tough times of your life so that where you are today is the perfect opportunity for hope in your life. So grasp it. Choose to have hope in Christ this morning because it is an anchor. It is an anchor that drops deep within your heart and deep within your life today. And man, the things around you may not immediately change. (coughs) Excuse me. And you may go back to the same situation at home that you go back to. But in the middle of all of that, you will find hope in Christ in it. 
Or some of you are sitting here and you say, Mark, but you don't know what I've done. You don't understand my track record. You don't understand the things in my life that I'm ashamed of. And can I tell you, I may not know them, but God does. And God knowing us in that illustration, when he finds us at the bottom of the ocean, he knows us, he knows what we're capable of doing, he knows what we have done in life, yet he still leaves the boat and he still come, swims to us and he still breathes life into us because he loves you regardless. So that is your hope this morning. Trust him with your life today. Invite him to come into your life as as the Lord and Savior of your life this morning on this Sunday before Christmas and trust Him. Trust Him this morning. Thank you, Father. We have hope in you. When life seems to be absolutely hopeless, we find hope in you this morning. Father, we give you thanks.